invite you to turn in your Bible with me uh, once again to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, this morning verses 7 through 11. Uh, this passage, uh, Peter is talking about uh, characteristic marks of Christian community. Uh, Christian community living in, in the light of the end of all things. Uh, end not, not in the sense of final event, but end in the sense of, of goal. Uh, Peter is saying in light of the, the consummation of all things, the end of all things being summed up uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, this then is how we ought to live. That's the big idea here. And along those lines, the Apostle Peter gives us four exhortations. Uh, if you glance over the passage, you'll notice that the first one in verse 7 has to do with, with how we handle ourselves. It speaks to us about self-control and sober-mindedness. And then he turns from how we handle ourselves to how we, how we relate to one another in verse 8. We seek to love each other earnestly. And, and then in verse 9, he, he talks about a very practical outworking of that. One of the ways we uh, tangibly love one another and how we use our homes, how we use our stuff, the resources God has given to us as we show hospitality to one another. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, uh, how we serve, how we serve in the local church. So in, in view of the end of all things, this is how we are to live. That's what Peter is saying. With that in mind, let's, let's turn to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through uh, 11. And I'm in Romans. What am I doing? <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I think many of you know I Recently got started with my uh, final course in the, the D-Min program at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And this class is different from all of the other classes. You know, previous seven classes that go in, listen to lectures, they're theology classes. But this final class is, is uh, essentially just about how to do research and how to write uh, uh, your project paper. And uh, some of you might think that sounds incredibly boring. 
I actually find it to be a lot of fun, but uh, one, of the, one of the good things that uh, has been emphasized in some of the notes I've read and lectures I've listened to online is you need to know, you need to know before you get started in writing your project, you need to know where you're headed first. In other words, you, you need to have your conclusion in mind before you start to write your project or you're not going to know where you're going. You're just going to be wandering around aimlessly. I think that's a wise piece of advice about just good writing in general, that uh, good writing develops an argument with the end in view. It's also true of good storytelling, isn't it? You know, a good storyteller does not just make it up as they go along. They have the end in view from the beginning and Everything along the way is ordered to that final conclusion. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here, I think, about the story of our Christian lives. That our lives take a certain shape in light of the final chapter, which, is, which has already been written and is soon to unfold. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Verse 7, therefore... Here, then, is how we are to live. So you see what he's saying? The end of all things is is pending the goal of history, the consummation of all things in Christ. History is being guided by God's providence to this great end of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things in him. And here are the implications for your daily life and how you relate to one another in the family of God. Now just so we don't misunderstand, Peter is not saying that when he wrote this letter that he believed that Jesus was going to return during his own lifetime. That's not what he's saying when he says the end of all things is at hand. Rather, he is is echoing the consistent teaching of the New Testament that since the life, death, resurrection, and ascension to reign of Jesus Christ, that the end of the ages, the last days, has begun and will continue until Jesus Christ returns. The teaching of the New Testament is we are living in the last days since the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. And as those rescued by Jesus... Peter is helping us understand that means that we can no longer live according to the ways of life defined by the world. But instead, as Peter has been talking about throughout this letter, we are called to a way of life defined by the world to come. We live according to the knowledge of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so then how do we write the story of our lives With the final chapter in view, what what shape do our lives take as we live in light of the goal of everything? Notice, as I said, how Peter moves first from the individual then to to community life. And and let me just mention as as an aside before we jump into this passage, it's, it's obvious, but this is something that we could easily overlook, that Peter's teaching here assumes Christian community, doesn't it? Life in the context of 
a local church, a fellowship of believers. We can't think about it in terms of what Peter says here. We can't We can't love each other earnestly, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, serve others with our gifts to the glory of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from being connected and invested in Christian community. See, friends, the the ethical teaching of the New Testament, the life God calls us to in Christ, cannot be fully followed apart from Life in a local church. And that's just assumed in this passage. Okay, so, so Peter um, is saying our, our lives take a certain shape and view of where we're headed. And, and I'll be the first one to say this this morning. Like, I, I find this passage enormously challenging to me personally. Like, I, I confess up front that... That the truth uh, that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the world and make all things new. He's coming again in glory one day. I, I confess that doctrine and at the same time I have to confess that it lies rather dormant in my thinking when it comes to how I conduct myself and, myself and how I care for fellow believers. But Peter, I think, is helping me, and I hope helps all of us today to see that the end of all things in Christ should exercise a lot more influence on the way that we make decisions day by day. So how about you? Just ask yourself some of these questions. Do, Do you ever find yourself slipping back into worldly ways of life, forgetting what you are for. Forgetting what you've been saved for. Do do the temptations of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil ever lead you away from handling yourself with spirit given self control and sober mindedness? Do the cares and concerns of the world ever distract you from devoting yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in real, tangible, concrete ways? Peter helps us to see that if we keep the end of all things, the goal of all things in view, we'll be equipped to get a grip on ourselves and we will get busy caring for one another. So let's, let's start here with verse 7 and see this, this first exhortation about how we're to handle ourselves. Okay, so given the end of all things, given that it's at hand, given that Jesus will return and sin will be no more and you will be given by the Father to the Son as his blood-bought gift, here then is how you should handle yourself with self-control and sober-mindedness. And you notice the contrast here, if you back up to something Peter has just said. Uh, the description of the life of the world back in verse 3. A life marked by sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, Peter's not saying that characterizes every single individual in the world. He's saying this is a pattern of life in the Roman world, in the the Greco-Roman culture. 
And I think we said last week, it's certainly a mark of our own times as well. It, it distills down to basically life lived for the pursuit of personal pleasure. Seeking satisfaction in the stuff of this world instead of in the God who made all things. And in contrast to that, saying if you live in light of the end, your life will not be marked by the unrestrained pursuit of personal pleasure. It won't be enslaved or dominated by by lusts and disordered passions. Instead, your life will be, it'll be brought under restraint and you will learn to think soberly because you've come to understand the way things really are and what things are really for and what you are for, where things are headed in the world. You aren't for the self-serving pursuit of your own pleasure and entertainment. Instead, as Peter makes clear here, you are for the glory of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. To to know and love him. to, To love others for his sake. To find your joy and satisfaction in him. And so your actions and your thinking are brought into conformity with that reality resulting in self-control and sober-minded thinking. Now you've, probably, you've probably heard of people you know, receiving a, a diagnosis that presses home upon them the, the reality of their own mortality. Or maybe just as, as, as our family has experienced being recently confronted by the reality of, of death. What does that do? One of the things it does is it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? It, it gives you a kind of clarity about the things that really count and the things that don't. It changes priorities and some of the ways that we make daily decisions, when we become more aware, more than ever, of our, of our own mortality. And in some way, I think that's what Peter is saying should be true of every Christian all of the time. Since we know the end of all things is at hand, we have an entirely different perspective on life. And so what we do with our bodies and the way we think about the issues of life takes its shape from this. And take a look at what Peter adds here. You're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. The ESV says, for the sake of your prayers. Now, literally, what what Peter says is uh, self-control, sober-mindedness, unto prayer. I think it's it's a really fascinating connection that the apostle Peter makes here because for some you know the certainty of the future right that that Christ is coming again it's as it's as good as done to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new could tip people towards some kind of fatalism right well if it's going to happen uh why, be, why live a self-controlled, sober-minded life? Why, why give myself to prayer? But you see, that's, that's not at all the natural consequence of Peter's teaching here. For him, 
The certainty of the end, the coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead, results in a call to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and prayerful. Prayerful. That's what it it produces. The, The fruit of this way of life and this kind of mindset makes God's people a prayerful people. Knowing knowing the end does not lead us to sit in our laurels, but drives us to be prayerful because we recognize that we are a dependent people. And so we give ourselves to earnest prayer. And so in the light of the end of all things, this is how we're to handle ourselves, self-control, sober-minded, and prayerful. And then secondly, Peter shifts to talk about how we are to treat one another. So let's take a look at this next exhortation in verse 8, where he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, in light of the end, when it comes to our relationships in the church of Jesus Christ, here is how we are to treat one another. Our calling is to love one another earnestly. Now, earnestly here is not so much in the sense of emotional intensity. Peter is speaking here about duration. He, he, he wants a persistent love. A love that keeps going. A love that doesn't give up. A love that perseveres. In good times and bad times. In easy times and hard times. In exciting times and boring times. Love perseveres, a love that doesn't quit. We're to love one another, we might say, tenaciously, clinging to the priority of love within the church. And notice notice that this is a top priority. Peter says, above all, keep loving. (laughs) Above any other concern, this must be our settled commitment for the church to survive and the church to bear fruitful witness in the world. We must love each other. I remember Paul, Paul has the same message uh, in a different context in, uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, we looked at this several months ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, the, the Corinthians were a group of remarkably gifted believers, but they were immature. And they boasted in their giftedness. They they wanted to use their spiritual gifts to establish themselves as spiritual Christians, as special Christians. And Paul comes to them and and says to them in 1 Corinthians 13, "Take, take spiritual giftedness to the highest possible imaginable degree. And let's say you have those gifts, but you have not love. What's he say? He says you're useless. You're useless. And now here, writing to Christians facing hard times, Christians who are facing opposition from the world for their faith, Peter's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to double down on loving each other. You need to get serious about loving each other. See, love is not an afterthought in the life of the church. Love is is the life of the church. We are nothing without it. 
We are nothing without love individually, and we're certainly nothing without it communally. And and notice the motive that he adds to keep loving earnestly. Why why should we do this? He says, because love covers, love like this, it covers a multitude of sins. And here he's probably reflecting on Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Here's what Proverbs 10, 12 says. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let's be clear about this. This, this does not mean, right, if you love me, you know, you'll look the other way no matter what I do. It does not mean, if you love me, you'll cover for me when I do wrong. The church is not a place that merely excuses or ignores wickedness or simply tries to cover up things because, well, that would be embarrassing. Or some sort of false message that that would somehow hinder the ministry of the church if we were to expose wrongdoing in our midst. That's not what Peter is saying. If we pay attention to Proverbs, we'll know what Peter means. Notice, Notice the opposing parallel there in Proverbs 10 verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers offenses. So love covering offenses is the opposite of hatred stirring up strife. So this is what hatred does. does. It it stirs up quarrels. It it fans the flames of resentments. And what is its opposite? Love that is forbearing. Love that bears long. Love that is patient and kind and Gentle, love that keeps no record of wrongs, love that refuses to perpetuate the cycle of hurt and hard feelings and tension and division and strife. In in this way, love covers over many sins, including the ones that we commit against each other. I wonder if you notice that in light of what I just said, an assumption that Peter makes in this passage, is that if you are part of Christian community, there's going to be sin. See that? That's that's one of the assumptions that Peter makes here. Because, brothers and sisters, we are not free from sin. God, God is at work in us. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus dwells within us. And God's will is our sanctification to conform us to the image of his beloved Son. But we still sin, and sadly, we sin against each other in things we say or do, or things we don't say or do. And as a result, sometimes rivalries, jealousies, dissensions, disagreements can can crop up in the church. And if we don't have love, what happens? We fan the flames, we we insist on our own ways, we, we try to get even, maybe we withhold our affection or withhold our service or withhold our presence by disassociating. But Peter reminds us that is not the way of love. Now to be clear, let's be clear about this, love sometimes requires us to confront a brother or sister, to lovingly challenge and exhort another to speak the truth to one another with grace. That's true. 
But let's also recognize that most of the time, okay, most of the time, love endures all things. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love keeps no record of wrong. It, it doesn't demand redress over every minor offense or hold grudges. You see, what, what Peter is really doing here is he's once again calling us to Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So that looking at how we treat one another in the household of God, people who do not know Jesus can see something of the amazing power of his grace shaping our lives and our relationships with one another. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We are peacemakers because we are at peace with God. We love each other because we are loved and we love in a way that reflects, that demonstrates the love that we have first received. Okay, so how we handle ourselves, how we treat one another, and then third, and connected to that, how, how we use our homes, right? how, we, how we use our stuff, our resources. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we need to, I think, appreciate th- th- this exhortation in its original context to these Christians spread throughout Asia Minor before we think about, okay, what, 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 what's it mean for us? I think there are at least two uh, direct uh, reasons Peter gives this exhortation for hospitality in the churches of Asia Minor. The first reason is, is that they probably uh, were meeting in uh, the home of a believer. They didn't have a church building like, like this. When the churches gather, they, they likely met in someone's home. Now, that's not to say this is, okay, so here's the apostolic ideal, meet in someone's home. That's, that's not the point. But you have the gospel going out into the world, and these new communities of Christians are being established in a hostile context. And the only place where these believers can gather is within someone's home. So we have passages like uh, Romans 16. Paul tells uh, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, greet also the church in their house. And you'll find the same language used in 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, and Philippians chapter 2. And so for some in the churches, the call to be hospitable meant open up your homes to the entire congregation. Right? Lord's Day by Lord's Day, a place was needed to gather for ministry and worship and fellowship. And and you can imagine the burden that that would have been upon some. Have people come into their homes each and every week for a place uh, for believers to gather. And, 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 And add on top of that the fact that you're living in a community that's looking with a suspicious eye upon Christians. And now here you are, inviting these groups of Christians into your home week by week. It very well may have come with a social cost as well. And so Peter exhorts them, practice hospitality without grumbling. This is important. He's saying, be willing willing to do it. 
And if we're just thinking broadly here about this, it's a reminder that sometimes there's, there's work and ministry that needs to get done. And we should be prepared to do it if we're able, without grumbling, because we love. Because we love God and because we love one another. You know, our default shouldn't be to do, you know, only what we, what, what we, what, what we want to do. Our default should be to do what we can, but not to immediately resist anything that we might find burdensome. I know my own heart. John opened up his heart this morning talking about Sunday school, how, how prone we are at times to resist the demands of love. And Peter's reminding us that our, we need to be rewired so that our default response is to do whatever we can in the name of love, to build up the body of Christ. The other aspect, I said there's two aspects to this call to hospitality. It's also very possible that many of these Christians living throughout Asia Minor had been driven away from their, their physical residence. So they are literally sojourners going from place to place. And so churches are being exhorted to show hospitality and provide for them. But you see, whatever the circumstances, I think it's clear for Peter that a normal expression of Christian love in the life of the church is the practice of Christian hospitality. I'm sometimes asked about the ministries of our church, how people can get involved or uh, how people can can uh, receive from the ministries of this church. And look, there are, there are, I hope, plenty of ways to get involved and plugged in and serve, plenty of ways to be blessed by the ministry of Trinity PCA. But I say this morning, what, what, a, what an impact I think we could have if we simplified things a little bit, if we just simply opened up our homes to one another. I'm not saying let's get rid of ministries of the church. That's not what I'm getting at here. I mean, what, what if... What if Christians answered this call to Christian hospitality and opened up their homes to one another? What if, what if once every other week or once a month or, or, or however often you're able, you, you planned ahead and you invited some folks to come over just to enjoy fellowship and a meal together? You know, turn off the TV. Please put your phone away. And give them your time and attention. S- sit around the table and, and, and feast together and laugh together and talk about the gospel and the things of the Lord and pray together. That's, that's it. Keep, it. keep it simple. A simple meal and some coffee. If it's our house, probably some wine. But that's up to you if you want it. If it's, if it's too much... I, I, I'm speaking as one with four little kids in our home, and I'm certainly not trying to put a burden on Kelsey here or any of you. If it's too much, why not join forces with others in the church and say, hey, if you're willing to host or I'll host, I'll bring the food, let's join together and let's have some folks from church over for a time of fellowship. Invite an older couple, invite a younger couple, invite a college student over and don't underestimate, don't underestimate what it could mean to them. Let me just say this, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big ordeal. 
Your house does not have to be spotless. Just open up your life and home and say, look, we've, we've got some extra food and some time today and we'd like to share it with you. Would you like to come on over? Honestly, I've, I've long felt that so much of what the church tries to accomplish today through more programs and more ministries would start to happen organically and spontaneously, naturally, and perhaps even better if we recovered in our day the basic Christian pattern of grumble-free Christian hospitality. If we just opened up our homes and our lives and our hearts and and shared a little of what we have with no frills, the Lord, I think, would do great things. And so how we handle ourselves, how we, how we treat each other, how we use our resources in, in the view of the end of all things, and, and finally, how we do ministry. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I don't know about you, but I always find the New Testament's teaching about spiritual gifts simultaneously incredibly encouraging and tremendously challenging. (laughs) Encouraging and challenging. It's encouraging because, verse 10, each has received a gift. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has given us, by his spirit, through the Lord Jesus Christ, a gift or gifts to serve one another. That's what Peter says. We have been given gifts by the Lord to serve each other here. Now, it needn't be public or up front. It needn't have a name or a ministry or a committee behind it. But if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been given a gift to serve others at Trinity PCA. See, friends, it's a reminder that ministry is not in the exclusive domain of pastors or church officers. It is the work of the people. And that's, that's so encouraging to know that as a believer, God has given us what we need to serve one another as brothers and sisters in the household of faith. He has equipped us to do it. It's the Lord's doing. So maybe you're gifted to encourage others. I, I know I myself have been so blessed by Several of you who are gifted with the gift of encouragement, and I know many others in the church have been blessed by that as well. One of my favorite gifts that often goes unmentioned and overlooked, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, he calls it the gift of helping. He identifies being a helper as a spiritual gift. These are people who are, who are always ready and eager and willing to just step in and help however they can, wherever they can, if they can. We have, we have no idea, dear friends, just how dependent we all are upon people with that spiritual gift, with the gift of helping. Others are gifted to teach. Others are gifted to serve. Others are gifted to be generous and support the work of the church financially in substantial ways. And, and others are gifted with tender hearts 
who, who love to show mercy to people in need. I mean, these are just some of the gifts that Jesus in his ascended glory gives to his church as he gives people to one another, to others in his church. Now, that leads us to the challenge then, doesn't it? Not only is this reality of spiritual gifts in the church and wonderful encouragement, it's also an incredible challenge because if you are gifted by the Lord Jesus himself to serve your brothers and sisters, well then that, that means you need to use your gifts, doesn't it? It means you need to serve. And notice the stated reason for, for doing so. It's, it's, not to, it's not to make a name for yourself. It's not to appear super spiritual. It's, it's not to look important. It's to serve. As Peter puts it, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right, you've, been, you've been given a gift to serve fellow believers. And the clear teaching of the New Testament is that your gift isn't for you. No, your, bro- your brothers and sisters are the recipients of your giftedness. Your giftedness is for them. And so Peter is urging us to use our gifts as a steward, faithful steward in God's household. As a servant is accountable to the master of a house for what he is, has done with it. What, what, he has been, what has been given to you. So friends, you know, we need to recognize the, the rub here. And why this is a bit of a challenge in our own context. You know, our, our culture has been training us for years and years now to view everything as a product for our own consumption, hasn't it? We, we live in a consumer society where we view ourselves as the sovereign consumer and we evaluate just about everything as a product for our acceptance or rejection. And, and sadly, that's even crept into how people think about the church today, that it exists for, for me, that it exists for my own personal consumption. Church becomes a service to us where we begin to see ourselves as consumers. And my friends, what a horrendous, terrible distortion that really is. Now, there's a truth in it, isn't there? That we, we do come to church in order to be blessed and in order to be served. We do come to receive. But the consumer mindset has no place in the Christian life. The consumer mindset has no place in the Christian church because in the household of God, we are told to be servant-minded, to come, to come with the mindset, how can I do whatever I can according to how God has gifted me to build up the body Christ. What would that look like? Well, it would look different, of course, for each and every one of us according to God's varied grace. But speaking generally, it will mean that in the church of Christ, we don't just coast along. We're not, we're not passive recipients. We're not mere consumers or pew warmers. We don't, we don't ever find ourselves saying, meh, meh, you know, so, someone else can do that. I've done my time. Now somebody else can step in and do it. 
brothers and sisters, young and old, if the Lord has gifted you, which he has if you are a Christian, then he calls you to use those gifts in service for the good of the body. And notice as we wrap up here, notice, notice the great aim of, of, of all this. Why, why, do we, why do we live this way? Right? In light of the end, why do we seek to live self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful lives? Why, why do we devote ourselves to loving each other earnestly, to opening up our homes to, to one another and serving one another in the household of God? Why do we do it all? Verse 11, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the, the way, the, the aim, the, the aim of this way of life, it's the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It is to set on display the goodness of God before the world. See, God wants us to live this way so that when others look at Trinity PCA, they might see an, an embassy of heaven, a colony of heaven on earth, a colony of the new creation where, where people love each other, share their lives with one another, and do ministry together and and by God's grace and goodness set on display in this way others may be led to say look at what God is doing in their midst look at what Jesus Christ is building I want to be a part of that that's Peter's goal here for the church to be a colony of heaven a group of elect exiles who display to the world the powers of of the age to come. So brothers and sisters, may may God, may God make it so more and more and more among us that we might live self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful lives in view of the end of all things in Jesus Christ. Love each other earnestly. Share our lives with one another. Seek to serve one another as best we can with the strength that God himself provides. And may God do that more and more among us so that he is glorified, so that his goodness is set on display before the watching world that others may come in and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for your word to us, for the word of the gospel, that you have rescued us from futile ways of living and you have established us in the good way of life in Jesus Christ, the same Christ who bore our sins on the tree to cancel the debt that stood against us and to die to sin that we might die with him to sin and live to righteousness. And so in the security of your grace to us in Jesus Christ, knowing that he has saved us and set us free, help us to hear this call to live self-controlled and sober-minded lives and to give ourselves to one another in love so that you would be glorified. 
And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.